can start with you now to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these words come to us in some degree of surprise, and Lord, they are not immediately clear. We ask, Lord, therefore, that you would make them clear in the power of your Holy Spirit and the great use you have for them. And your glory and in our good might be made manifest and clear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We carry on in Luke chapter 23, coming now to this section, covering verses 26 to 31. We will largely pass over verse 26, having to do with the story of the man who carried Jesus' cross for a time, Simon the Cyrenian except by way of application. But our focus will be on Christ's interaction with the women who are mourning for him. It is actually remarkable to me that this interaction happened at all because this was not an ordinary time for Christ. We are used to him teaching as he goes. Wherever he goes, we find him teaching. And ever is it a reminder to us of the the mission of the church, the thing which the church must focus on. To give the means of grace. But of course here, in these circumstances, it is remarkable that he had time for them or had the, the words for them. Because this pain already intense after having been scourged, Roman scourging, some people died from it. The fatigue of having carried that extremely heavy cross, the distance that he already had carried it. We know from the other Gospels that's why they had someone else carry the cross at this point because he fell down and was unable to carry on. And the dread of what lay ahead and all these things, this intense pain of every, every sort, he yet had thoughts and words to spare for these people who were mourning for them. Now as I say, the, the women were mourners, the ones that he was interacting with. They were mourning. His own mourners were there both in what was happening already and was what was yet to happen. Now, that doesn't ordinarily happen for you and I. We don't already meet those who are mourning for us in the process of mourning. But in this case, that was Christ's situation. And Jesus wants to redirect their mourning. He tells them that they should actually be mourning for themselves and for their children. And in the things that he describes, it's very clear he is talking about the coming destruction in AD 70. 
And for them these for him these things of course were not so terribly distant in the future. He says for you and for your children because some of them would still be alive in AD 70. This crucifixion happened probably in the year 33. It's not an infinite distance in the future. And certainly for their children. And he says you're the ones who ought to be mourning for yourselves in this great destruction. And he reinforces this counsel with what he says in verse 31. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? We're going to really focus on that question. Because what it tells us, what it tells them, we learn from it, is that they were actually in worse situation than he. He was carrying a cross until he could no longer carry it. His back was bleeding from the scourging that he'd received, and he was headed to the place of execution where he would shortly be nailed to that cross and soon enough die. But he was adamant that the people next to him, the people who were mourning him, were actually in far worse situation. And there is a word of wisdom, there is a word of counsel for us. It is possible for those who are already mourning to be in worse situation than the one they are mourning for. It is possible. Well, the title this morning is Counsel for the Mourners. Counsel for the Mourners. With these four points. One, women mourned for Christ. Second, Christ counsels the women. Third, Christ was a green wood And fourth, the people were dry. So first, women mourned for Christ. In verse 27, a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. And let me say, at at one basic level, this is only right and proper that this was the case. Every death, every human death ought to be mourned. We are made in the image of God. We are not like animals. But there is to be greater mourning for greater persons. We sometimes like to think in this forced egalitarianism of our age. Well, we are all alike made in the image of God. We are all, therefore, alike worthy of mourning. But the magnitude of that mourning, particularly in the number of those who mourn, that is related to the greatness of the person who dies. And friends... Christ was the greatest person that there ever was. He was the Messiah, the anointed Savior of Israel. He was the King of Israel, even as we had just seen, reminded by this wicked Pilate. Are you the King of Israel? Yes. Yes, he was the King of Israel. And that whole nation should have come to a grinding halt and put on sackcloth and ashes and mourned. What was to happen to their king? If anyone ever should have been lamented in all the history of the world, in any place in particular, Jerusalem, it should surely have been Christ. It was right that they mourned. It was only pathetic that not more were joining. Too many voices, of course, were crying crucify. But there were some voices who mourned and lamented that which was happening, and that was right. But beyond the greatness of the person, and we say there's no greater than Christ, there's also the circumstances of the death that also lends to an intensification of the mourning. And the circumstances of Christ's departure were certainly lamentable. 
Yeah, he was not dying of natural causes at a ripe old age when one of us dies at age 100 after a long battle with illness. There is an element by which our mourning is not quite so intense and great. But when one is cut down in the flower of his youth and power, then the intensif- there, there's an intensification of that mourning in these circumstances. And so it was with Christ. He was not dying of natural causes at a ripe old age. He was certainly being cut down in the flower of his youth by wicked men in his, in his 30s. Friends, what this means is that there couldn't have been an occasion, a greater occasion on earth for mourning, when we're speaking of one who is to die, than of the situation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, being killed as he was. It was right that they mourn for him. It was entirely understandable. And we do not take what Christ says here to be rebuke for them mourning him. That's not what he's saying. It is very often in scripture when, when it says, not this but this. You understand that it's not saying not this at all, but saying that this is even greater. And so we say, yes, there couldn't have been a better occasion to mourn as far as the death of someone. But Christ is saying that there's something even more worthy of lamentation. So that brings us to our second point, that Christ counsels the women. In verse 28, Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Turning things on their heads. Here he was, having been scourged, having carried the cross as long as he was physically able until he falls down, soon enough to be nailed to it. And his counsel is, you should be weeping for yourselves and for your children. How do we understand that? We look at the explanation that he gives in verse 29. For the deed, the days are coming, in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. And what he is saying, again, he is speaking particularly to the women of Jerusalem. And the mothers naturally care for their children and try to protect them. That is the way God has made them. But there would be no protection for anyone in AD 70. The Romans would come in all their merciless fury and they would destroy everything in their path and there's no way that any mother was going to be able to shield any child. And their, their own suffering would be intensified as they see the destruction, the suffering and destruction of their own children. And yes, in that way it would be better that they'd never born than to see their own children come to such a dreadful end. It would be so bad that as Christ relates it in verse 30, they would begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And that's indicative of the greatest sort of calamity when someone wants to say to the mountain, wants to say to the hill, fall on me. That tells you just how bad the circumstances are. It's very similar actually to what we have in Revelation chapter 6. Some of you remember that. From the Revelation series, perhaps. And the kings of the earth, Revelation 6.15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men. Every slave and every free man. And 
just to say briefly, speaking of the whole spectrum of society, those who are most able to protect themselves, the kings and the rich and the captains, the greatest of men, the ones who would otherwise be in a position to save themselves or protect themselves, they're the ones particularly who are saying, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Let me just say, that as we consider AD 70 in the coming Roman government, we must understand the hand of God behind it. All right? Even as we think of these words in Revelation, which have to do with the coming wrath of God on the whole world, What happened in AD 70 was a picture of that. It was a foretaste of that. It was an aspect of it. And that these people had brought such judgment upon themselves by what they did with the Son of God. It was a fulfillment of that parable that Jesus had said before. The the landowner kept sending prophets, kept sending messengers to receive the fruit, and all of them were turned away. Some were shamefully abused and some were killed. And last of all, he sends his own son, his only son. He says, surely they will respect my son. But they don't. They say, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. We'll secure for ourselves ownership of this place. But oh, they were mistaken, were they not? They were so mistaken. As he asked the question, what do you think is going to happen then to those people? Well, they're going to be cut into pieces. As the father is not going to hold them guiltless who so dealt with their son. And so it was. And so it was. But friends, I say all this because as we speak of their situation, I want us continually to be thinking that what was to be happening in AD 70, well, that's soon enough going to happen to the whole world as God brings judgment day. The great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand And that helps us to understand this counsel to mourn for themselves. The women who are mourning for him, they are the counsel that they should mourn for themselves and for their children of this great day of wrath that was to come. And in mourning, by the way, he's not telling them to do anything he'd not do himself. He's already mourned for them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You remember that weeping as he came to that great city. And he sees their rejection. He knows exactly what is going to happen. And he mourns for them as he sees them bringing destruction upon themselves. And friends, he does that for every sinner. He looks at you in particular, those who have heard the word of God but have not yet believed it, have not yet trusted in Christ. And what lies ahead for you is far worse, far worse than what has happened to any of our departed brothers and sisters who died in the Lord. He looks at these things and he weeps. As he's done before, by the way, in Lamentations, I said when he comes to Jerusalem, he weeps for Jerusalem, but he does so in Lamentations too. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare you with that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you faults and deceptive visions. 
They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. That's what's so sad about liberalism because that's what is done. It hastens destruction upon the church and upon the nation because instead of bringing people to repentance and uncovering their sin and showing them the way of escape, it only hardens them and reaffirms them in their sin and guarantees coming destruction. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this a city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it and have seen it. And speaking of the, the voice of the enemies, they are glad. They open their voice and say, we have accomplished this. We have done what we wanted to, to our hated enemy, Jerusalem. But listen in verse 17 of Lamentations 2. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. And he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. And so in the midst of looking at AD 70, the actions of a Roman emperor to destroy Jerusalem as it then was, we do not forget, we cannot forget the hand of the Lord in bringing these things to be. Is it possible that he is making lamentation for them even as he's saying that he's bringing about this destruction first with the Babylonians and then with the Romans? Yes, of course it is. He has no, death, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, he would desire everyone to turn, turn from his evil way rather than to face the destruction which you will surely bring upon the wicked. Now, as he explains all these things, he says, no, you need to be, you need to, to, to rather lament and mourn for yourselves and for your children. And then he intensifies this, he explains it even further in verse 31. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Well, this now helps us, this is our guide for the, the next two, the last two points. Christ, thirdly, Christ was green wood. And that's what he's saying. For if they do these things in the green wood. You're talking about two different things, a green tree and some dead tree. And in every way, you say, well, you're going to treat the, the dead thing better than you're going to treat the living thing. You have a live tree, you have no good reason to cut it down. If you did cut it down, it's not immediately eligible for the fire. I'm sure if you've tried that, it doesn't work very well because... The, the green wood doesn't burn very well. On the other hand, if you have something that is dead and dry, not only is there not, no reason not to cut it down, it's already dead, but now it's useful for the fire. It's eligible fuel for your fire, and therefore it's very liable, very likely to be burned. And he's making this contrast. He's saying, look, if they do this to the green, what are they going to do to the dry? And at the most basic level, he's probably pointing out that he was innocent of the crime of insurrection for which he was charged. They trumped up these charges of, of insurrection and rebellion, but they weren't true. And even Pilate knew that. And yet he was, uh, he was suffering that which was due 
an insurrectionist, a terrorist, and indeed he would be crucified with one on either side. As we mentioned last time, he was in essence taking the place of the ringleader of these insurrectionists, Barabbas. But he was, he was, he was green. He was innocent of these crimes. They would not be so, let me say. They actually would be guilty of insurrection and rebellion. And they would get the full force because of it. Now, beyond the fact that he was innocent of this particular crime of insurrection, he was not guilty of any sin whatsoever. Try as they might, they could not find any way in which he'd ever done wrong because he was utterly sinless. And friends, sin and death are connected. Sinners die because they're sinners. Death is not natural. Death happens because of judgment on sin. That is what the Lord had said long time ago. To Adam and Eve in Genesis, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that is true. There is sin. There is death because there is sin. There is no sin in Christ. He was a green tree. There's nothing eligible with him regarding the fire. That's, of course, why death in the end could not hold him. There was no, no sin there. And why he rose again the third day. But they would surely try to put him to death forever. And they did for a time. And beyond the fact that there was no sin, there's no positive fuel for the fire, rather there is life. It's not, it's not death, it's not sin, rather it's the opposite, it is life coursing through him. He says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He has the life within himself. There are, there's the, the water that is, that is springing up, that he gives to other people. He, he is the source himself of that water, that life. It's all from him. It's in him. And yet, they find in him the very source of life, the sinless one. They find an excuse to have him condemned as the worst criminal. If such things were done to the green, what is going to be done to the dry? And friends, that's a useful reminder to us as well. Remember that the, the, our, our God... In his justice and particularly in his mercy to us who would be willing to lay down the life of his son. The son lay down his life. Willing to see these things done to him. Friends, what about the dry? What about those who are his enemies? Well, let me say fourthly then, this Christ, he was, he was green and yet these things happened to him. He's living, alive, source of life even. But fourthly and finally, the people, they were dry. For If they do these things in the greenwood, what, shall, what will be done in the dry? These people didn't have the source of life within themselves. Certainly not. And on the other hand, they did have sin. They, the absence of that which was life-giving and life-preserving, and rather the presence of that which was fuel. Sin. They were born sinners, rightly sharing in the guilt of their first father. That very first sin, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That sin pertains to all of us. We all share in that guilt because we were all part of Adam. He was our covenant head by nature. And there are many other sins beyond that. By the way, let me just, note, let me just say, though, the corporate dimension here. Weep for yourselves and for your children. What he's saying is that AD 70 is about 37 years in the future. And perhaps the majority of those who would die in AD 70 were not alive at the time of Christ's death. Do you understand that? And yet, they were paying for that sin. 
Some of you think that's unfair. Because you live in the most individualistic time that has ever existed on the, in the whole history. History knows nothing of the individualism that our culture right now embraces and espouses as if it were truth. Well, friends, that is alien to the word of God. God deals with us in terms of covenants. And absolutely, it is the case that we bear the sin. Yes, bear, have the guilt of Adam's sin. And it was right that these people uh, have involvement with the sin of their fathers in putting Christ to death. Well, let me say beyond that, they've done this. They have this sin of rightly sharing in the guilt of their first father, rightly have, and, and all the other sin that they, that they have committed, all these things, any one of which is worthy of eternal death, to add to it the sin of putting Christ to death. And I would say as well the guilt of the insurrection, which Christ was so innocent of. He was innocent of it, but they would do it. They would not learn their lesson And they would continually do things to provoke the Roman government until eventually they brought upon themselves complete destruction. They were dry. They were the most eligible. If Christ was the least eligible to have any of these things happen to him, they were the most eligible. And we have a picture of that dryness in Ezekiel 37, a spiritual deadness and dryness in the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. It was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? It's a good question. It's a good question. They were dry. No life in them. Can they live? And so I answered, O oh Lord, God, you know. As we move now to application, we ought to consider just how dreadful the situation of those women and of the whole human race really was and really is. Indeed, all those who are here without Christ, your situation is more dire than you might expect. And I'm pretty sure that there were those on that funeral Monday who were mourning, lamenting, For the departure of their beloved sister, perhaps, their relative, certainly, their friend, they were mourning for her. And yet their situation was vastly worse, and Christ would have said the same thing to them. Don't mourn for her, but for yourself and that which is coming. Because we believe that she died in the Lord, and her situation is no longer lamentable. There would be some there, and some certainly in that funeral of thousands, and storing away, those who've heard probably much good preaching, those who've heard the gospel preached many times, mourning the passing of Andy Campbell, and yet their situation, far worse, far, far worse. Well, what is Jesus' point in this? What do you think he is saying to these women as he says, don't, don't mourn for, your, your, for me, but for you. There's coming on this city a great destruction which you can barely conceive. What do you think is the implicit com, uh, instruction to them? He's not saying that there's some way you can prevent it. They're, the doom was sealed by that point. As the whole city unites in shouting, crucify, crucify, that's the end. 
Destruction is looming over that city, and it was only a matter of time until it came. It's amazing that it even lasted those next 37 or so years. What do you think then is the counsel, is, is the thing, the application that Jesus would have for those women who were mourning him? Any guesses? Leave. Get out. Okay, that's, that's the only right application for a city that is set to destruction. He's made that absolutely clear. It's going to come. It's going to be unbelievable what, they're going to, what is going to happen in this city. And what they needed to do was not merely to lament and mourn, but to do something about it, which is to leave. And the counsel that he would give to those at that time. But that's only a, a physical picture of the larger situation. That was very true for the city of Jerusalem. We don't live in Jerusalem, but I tell you, we live in a city that is set for destruction. There are those who would invite you at this point in the application section, invite you to make a better city culturally. Come, let's, let's make the city better. And I'm sure in our vocations, we will inevitably make the city better. As Christians serve as salt and light. But friends, the bigger problem is not that our culture is not as great as it could be. Our bigger problem is that the city is soon enough to be destroyed, and that without remedy. The Son of God is going to come in his justice, and he is going to pour out his wrath and fury upon unrepentant sinners. And I'm telling you to flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come. Some would tell you as well that you're a green tree. You're so wonderful that you are fit for heaven. And I'm telling you, no, you're dry. You're fuel for the fire. You're eligible to be burned. Indeed, for those who have not repented and put their faith in Christ, it is inescapable. This is precisely what is going to happen to you. And therefore, of of all, you should certainly flee this wrath to come. And that's why Matthew Henry says, so wonderful, so timeless, his counsel. With an eye of faith, we behold Christ crucified. We ought to weep not for him, but for ourselves. We must not be affected with the death of Christ as with the death of a common person whose calamity we pity or of a common friend whom we're likely to part with. The death of Christ was a thing particular. It was his victory, his triumph over his enemies, and it was our deliverance. And the purchase of eternal life for us. And therefore let us weep not for him but for our own sins. And for the sins of our children that were the cause of his death. And weep for fear. And these were the tears that he prescribed. Weep for fear of the miseries we shall bring upon ourselves if we slight his love. If we reject his grace as the Jewish nation did. And friends you have to understand that. The means of their salvation was there in front of them. And all they had to do was to believe. And instead, they rejected him, and rightly bringing upon them even swifter judgment. Beloved, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby, through that means, flee the city of destruction. Look, there is an exit sign. And if indeed this place, this physical place were on fire, we would go. To these exit signs. Isn't it so helpful that the state in all of its wisdom provides for our physical security in such a way that there are exit signs. There's one there, there's one there I think, and there's one there. 
I'm trying to do the same spiritually, something far more important. There is an exit sign. Destruction looms over this city and all, all the cities of this world. And I tell you to flee the wrath to come. And, and rather than there being a man there running, there's, there should be another sign or word, rather, of Christ, a word given to us that we flee to him for salvation. We should flee this city. We should flee to Christ. And secondly, we have to understand we need to bear the cross. Friends, that's the little thing about Simon in verse 26. They lay held of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from this country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And immediately we ask, why not one of the disciples? Because this was part of the, the, the prescription. This is part of the procedure for those who are being crucified. They would find some associate whom maybe they hadn't found conviction for. But they, as a particular warning, somebody who was associated with this insurrectionist, this terrorist, they would make him uh, bear the cross. There's a little bit of punishment and mainly a warning to him and to others, you're next. You're next. Oh, should have been Peter, really, as the number one disciple, or maybe John. But you know what happened to them, right? They fled. They wanted nothing to do with it. Peter in himself, maybe he was fearing precisely this sort of thing. And he made sure to disassociate himself sufficiently from Christ so he wouldn't have to. And so the honor went to another, to this man whom we otherwise knew nothing about but whose name we now shall never forget. In all of eternity we shall remember the name of Simon the Cyrenian, because he, in his willingness, perhaps even half-hearted, but his, his willingness to be identified with Christ, he was given this shame in the world's terms, but great honor and glory in, in real terms to bear the cross. He bore it after Jesus because it wasn't really his cross. It was a cross of Christ. And friends, that's us too. It's not really our cross that we're being called to bear, but rather the cross of Christ that we are bearing after him. The shame and the separation from this world, this instrument of death and suffering, we are bearing it after him because of our association with him. And we should be willing, we must be willing to bear it. Or we cannot be his disciple. Thirdly, I say we should mourn with those who mourn. And I think that we have had reason in recent days to consider this subject. We ought to have funerals. We ought to give vent to our mourning. And to bring some sort of, not only to, to give vent to these feelings, but to bring some measure of closure. It is right that we have funerals. And it is right that there should be dignity in our funerals. You know, that idea of dying with dignity that people speak of, meaning killing people if they're old or they have a terminal illness, that's not dignity, that is murder. And let me say that it is impossible to die with dignity because death itself is inherently undignified. All right, In whatever way you can think of dying, it is humiliating. Whether in your strength to be cut down, that means something violent has happened to you, some sort of accident or maybe you're killed in, in some other kind of violence, or in old age you, you gradually become less and less dignified and more and more humiliated in some kind of, of disease, chronic disease that takes away all of your strength and even your mental facilities. It's not dignified. 
It's not supposed to be. But friends, there can be dignity actually in burial. And do you know that? That the dignity for Christ actually came in his burial? In his funeral? Isaiah 53.9 says, They made his grave with the wicked, but at, with the rich at his death. And what that means is that they, they made him, they, they, in the process of his dying, he was made to be humiliated. Made to be like one of these great sinners. But actually, as we know, that he was given the burial of the rich and powerful. A burial fit for the king. And that was the dignity that in the providence and in the determination of the living God, that was the sort of funeral that his son had. And it was fitting and right. It never has so much been lavished, actually, on such a temporary grave. It was only going to last for less than three days, much less. But so it was, and it was right. And we know in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. It is right for Christian people to have funerals and to lament the death of people like Stephen. Devout men carried him and made great lamentation. It is right that we have them. It is right that there be dignity in them. And there should be public confrontation with death. Let me say that funerals have a, a, a use in the larger community. Not just for ourselves, that we come face to face with our departed loved one. But in the larger community, funerals serve the purpose of reminding people of the presence of death. And how lovely and good and right it was. The city of Stornoway came to an absolute halt for the funeral on Friday. An absolute halt. Even those who are not part of the procession, which is the largest that have been in the last 30 years or so, everyone else has stood as the procession went past. And they're reminded of death. And friends, that is a mercy to us. This world would prefer to have it clinical so that no one ever sees death at all and we we have no idea that it happens. Why? Because Satan wants you hooked up to the machine as you go straight to hell. He's built a casket for people and it's got TV screens on every side. And there you are on the conveyor belt straight to hell and he does not want to remind you of that. But when the procession goes past and devout and godly men are carrying their departed brother, you cannot forget that death is coming for us all. And that's a good thing. But let me say finally, with mourning for those who mourn, that in terms of Christian funerals, very, very often the mourners are in worse situation than the one that they have come to mourn. And that is a useful thing then, that funerals should be a reminder of the gospel and there should be a gospel message in them. And so there was in both cases. We praise God for it. So yes, we should have funerals. We should mourn with those who mourn. Fourthly, we should expect words of correction. Just a very brief point, but let me say again. Notice what Christ was doing. What prompted Christ to offer, to, to speak at all, was to offer some correction for these people. Something is, they're not thinking correctly, and he has to correct their thinking. And that is the essence of the teaching ministry. At all points, in all times, there is ignorance, there is waywardness, and it seeks to correct that. And that's 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice that two of those words have explicitly to do with correction. Reproof and correction. The other two words include it as part of their their definition, doctrine and instruction. It's about correcting ignorance. It's about correcting waywardness. And friends, if you have some aversion to being corrected, it's going to be a tough Christian life for you. Because that's the essence of Christ's teaching ministry. And the teaching ministry of any good church. Fifthly and finally, let me say this. We've spoken enough about funerals and about mourning. um, But we have a church anniversary, don't we? And what I find particularly relevant about this portion of scripture is the way that Christ shifted their time frame. The way that Christ shifted their time frame. The entire focus was on the events of that day that this man is going to be crucified and of course it's very, very sad. Christ reminds them that in about 40 years, things would be very different. Well, we're reminded on this anniversary of the eight good years that God has given us thus far. But friends, what is going to happen 37 years in the future? I don't know and you don't know. But in our estimation, in our consideration, in our thinking, we should have that year and the years ahead of that in our minds as well. We look back and give thanks for these few years that we've had. But friends, we look and we plead with the Lord for the days that are coming. Because it is not normal for churches to remain as good as they've begun. It is almost unheard of that they end better than what they begin. And if we wish that to be the case, then we need to be on our knees before the Lord praying it. Because ordinarily the way of the world, the way of all churches, is that bit by bit they forget the things that God once blessed them through. And they turn to other things in accordance with their own proclivities and their own selfishness and their refusal to be corrected by the word of God. Friends, we should pray for this church on its anniversary. Pray for yourselves and for your children, your children who will be here in the years to come and those who will follow, that we remain faithful until the end. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your kindness to us, speaking the word even through Christ as he came to the end himself. and his great pain and agony, he yet corrected the wrong thinking of these women who were rightly mourning him. Now, Lord, we have been mourning this last week. But Lord, you correct us even in the midst of these things. And how we pray, Lord, that those here who are without Christ that they would consider rather themselves and understand the terrible situation that they are in, and that you would enable them in your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to flee the wrath to come. And Lord, indeed, for all of us, that you would enable us to be faithful, yes, to mourn with those who mourn and to do so rightly and with dignity and respect. Lord, that we pray for this church in the years to come, even as we thank you for that which you've given to us thus far, that we would expect and be willing to receive your words of correction, and that we'd be willing to bear our cross to be identified with Christ no matter what, and that you would enable us to be faithful until the end. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.